0: You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue.
1: Hey, Michael, did you know there's a way to take part in this podcast?
0: Jeez, Andre,
2: how would you do that? Well,
0: if
1: you go to Henry of Pelham's website, you can buy tickets. At henryofpelham.com? That's right. You can listen to Two Guys Talking Live where we are going to get to the bottom of Baco Noir with the Spec Brothers.
2: Holy, that's right. I remember that now. That's going to be on October 21st. It's a Saturday, 2 to 4 in the afternoon. We're going to have all three Speck Brothers on the same stage with us. and We're going to be talking to them live. And You can be part of it and you can even get a chance to ask your own questions. The questions that me and Michael are obviously forgetting because we're idiots! And drunk!
1: <laughs> this is going to be part of the Legacy series and it's going to be very exciting. We're going to get it from the horse's mouth, the original story of Henry of Pelham.
2: Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Very much so. So, people, get your tickets, henrypelham.com, or you can probably link in through uh, my website, michaelpincuswinerview.com. My website, andrewinerview.ca. There's all kinds of information there. We hope to see you.
1: Now, speaking of Henry of Pelham, they actually own a wine agency as well, Family Wine Merchants.
2: But hold on, before we do this, take an e. Okay, taking a knee. Taking a knee. Everybody off the chair, taking a knee. And the moment of silence is done. The anthem is finished. Yep, okay. They do own a, um, uh, a an agency called Family Wine Merchants.
1: And uh, one of the labels they carry is Buena Vista Wines. Yes. And it is one of the original wineries from California. So you told me. And a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to drive to California, and this was along the, Route 66. Along Route 66, and this is one of the wineries that I visited. And if anyone goes to AndreWinerview.ca, I have a really interesting experience from visiting this winery because the wines from this winery are very good. They offer exceptional value, and they are made with kind of Grapes? craft, craft wine in mind. It's not a; they're not focusing on. On large-scale wine. Because the thing is, when you're talking about a lot of California wines in that sub-$20, around that $20 price range, it is some very large producers with maybe less of a focus on quality and more of a focus on making a a, a consistent taste profile. And I'm talking about something like Apothic. And if you're listening to this and you like Apothic, that's a no-judgment statement. But if you've listened to this podcast before, you know that Michael and I really are more interested in terroir and telling the stories that come with the wineries.
2: So... You came back and you couldn't stop talking about Buena Vista.
1: The funny thing about this winery is if you go to AndreWineReview.ca and you read my review of this winery... On
2: AndreWineReview.ca?
1: I didn't take a single tasting note of any of the wines at this winery.
2: So they don't appear on AndreWineReview.ca?
1: But my visit for the winery is profiled because of the man that we're about to talk to. And that's
2: at AndreWineReview.ca?
1: So when you go to this winery, this winery is really more about the experience as much as it is about making and selling wine. You arrive at the winery. The winery staff is dressed in period costumes from the 19th century as the history of the winery goes back uh, to the 19th century.
2: So you d- you obviously weren't going to take me to California I was not with it. you I was not uh, to uh, to have me experience this. So we did the next best thing. We were invited to speak to the Count by family wine merchants and Penelope Irving hats off to her fabulous person for helping to line this up so you go to buena
1: vista they have a gentleman who is the count of buena vista the original founder of the winery who if he were alive today would be over 200 years old but he really he plays the part really well he knows the history of the winery he knows the name of his children he knows where he was at what year in his life and he knows the history of the winery and not only that, if you are going to the winery and you have questions about the wine, he knows this shit about that too. It's right. really great experience and I was happy to share it with you, Michael, and I'm glad that we're going to share it with the listeners of the podcast. Boy, you're
2: very excitable right now. I think I'm going to shut you up and uh, here he is. We're us talking to the Count.
1: I mean, it's not often that we get to speak to historical well, figures on this podcast. Or royalty. Or royalty for that matter. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've been working on the Legacy Series for Ontario, so we've been speaking to some of the founders of the Ontario wine industry, but what if we had a chance to speak to one of the founders of the Californian wine industry? That would be kinda cool. What do you got in mind, Andre? Well, let me introduce to you
0: the Count of Buena Vista. Thank you, thank you very much. I could not be happier to be here. I am Count Augustin Hodesty. Founder of Buena Vista Winery in 1857. You look surprisingly young for your age. I am 205.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Now, I had a chance to meet the Count a couple of years ago when I went to uh, California. And it was quite the experience. If you take a look at my website, AndreWinerby.ca, and you take a look at my blog post, I left the winery, and when I was looking at my notes when I got home, I realized I had not taken a single tasting note about the wines. I remember the wines being very good, but the experience, you arrive at this winery in California, and everyone is wearing costumes from the period, from the 1840s, and uh, we were fortunate enough to be given the tour, and uh, we got the whole story, but I thought we would capture some of that here, so uh, Count, why don't you tell us a little bit about... Uh, getting the winery started up and going.
0: I could not be happier to tell you this amazing story and especially in this new fangled world where there are these modern devices to record my voice so that many people can hear.
1: We've come a long way from the wax cylinders you may have seen at some point in your your lifetime?
0: Well, by the 18th, my death in 1869, I don't think so. Has be begun yet? Nope, that's no. pre wax
1: yeah. cylinders, 1877. Yeah.
0: Well, I am a Hungarian. I was born in Pest in 1812. My life was pleasant. I am a member of the nobility. My family and I farmed thousands of acres of land. Wheat, corn, barley, oats, alfalfa, hops to make beer, grapevines to make wine. But, but I had heard of America, you see. And in Hungary, two or three blood-sucking monopolies held all the business. And so in 1841, my family and I sold all of our land. I'm an only child. My mother, Anna, my father, Karoy, my wife, Eleonora, our three boys, Geza, Attila, and Arpad moved all the way from Hungary to Wisconsin. A and landing place of any good immigrant. Well, it was the West, as it opened as a territory in 1836, and I was able to purchase land at $1. twenty-five cents an acre from the federal government. I am an entrepreneur, a businessman. I laid up the streets of a town. Uh, this town I founded, Hadashti Town, is now called Sauk City.
1: Okay.
0: And this is where I've heard there is a modern water park, where you can you can go in these sil- is- these cylinders and fly down into uh, the what a, a pool they call them. Well, I laid out the streets of a town on the banks of the Wisconsin River. There was a butcher shop, a brickyard, a stagecoach line, a ferry boat across the river. I had the very first shipping line on the Upper Mississippi and Wisconsin rivers. I, of course, grew hops and grapevines. It was the first hops in Wisconsin and the first grapevines, but the hops did better than the grapevines.
1: I imagine in Wisconsin that would be the case. I think that's true, too.
0: Now, many of you listeners, or you may have been to Waller's Shine Winery in Wisconsin. Nope. <laughs> this is on the exact spot where my vineyards were planted. To this day, the finest vineyard land in Wisconsin. It is calcareous limestone soil, southwestern exposure. And so, uh, well, Because of the discovery of gold you see, in 1848, I as an ambitious man knew I must go to seek the gold. So in 1849 my family and I sold all of our land and we joined a wagon train in 1849. Went all the way from Wisconsin to San Diego, California in a nine month, 2,500 mile journey. Wow. Did you get robbed in the stagecoach? Uh, Well, it was quite exciting at one time in what is now current-day Arizona. Half our horse herd was stolen by Comanche Indians. Myself and 20 men rode out and came back with the horses. We also floated down part of the party through what is now called the Grand Canyon.
1: That's quite the view down there.
0: And so it was a very exciting journey. Finally, on December 1st, 1849, we spotted the glimmering Pacific Ocean in the distance, and I bought land in San Diego. Uh, Planted grapes. And on April 1st, 1850, I was elected the very first sheriff. San Diego County. How much was land in San Diego at that time? It was very inexpensive. It was about $4 an acre. I also was the first... A person to create a stagecoach or omnibus line from La Playa to the plaza or the porch to the town with a man named Juan Bandini, my business partner. And it was a difficult job being sheriff. Most of my time spent explaining to the drunks they must stop shooting off their pistols in the streets or I will be forced to throw them into the Husql. Now, after two years of being a sheriff, I ran for the state legislature as I am a politician. I was elected And on January 2nd, 1852, I boarded the steamboat, the Golden Era, and went north to the city of San Francisco en route to the town of Vallejo where the legislative session would be held. In 1852, San Francisco was the most exciting city in America with 35,000 miners, all the money to spend on fresh fruit and vegetables and wine. So I, I purchased 200 acres near Mission Dolores, I called it Las Flores. I planted 500 rose bushes. I had planted 50,000 grapevines in San Diego and we dug every one up. My workmen dug every single one up into a, a sack, a root ball sack and burlap and trans- mit- transferred these all by steamboat all the way to San Francisco where I replanted all 50,000 of them.
1: Do you remember what kind of grapes it was you had planted at the beginning? Well,
0: of course we had mission grape. Was as was, as was this was common. We also had more varietals than is commonly understood. Golden Chasselas was one of the grapes. Uh, it had made its way up from the uh, from Valparaiso, Chile. The Russians, in fact, planted Golden Chasselas in Sonoma County at Duncan's Mills in 1915. In a curious irony of fate or twist of fate, the Russians were the first Europeans to plant grapevines in Sonoma County, not the Spanish. Mm-hmm. Their grapevine, their first vineyard was in 1925. Hmm. The Russians. The Russians. In California. In California, as they'd come down from Alaska. from they're taking city... over the country ever since. They stopped after, <laughs> <laughs> well. well They've got it now. There's that. <laughs> I'm a student of modern, the modern world, so I think I, I understand your <laughs> reference there. Uh, yes, it was the Russians. Now other grapes, by 1850, you could get almost anything you wanted through the Isthmus of Panama. So, so vinifera was available, more available than is understood. So I had flame toque, uh, a very nice, large grape. Um, and uh, also, uh, well, whether I brought Zinfandel or not has been a point of discussion for a very long time. And my brother, Ar- my son Arpad, said for many years that I was the one who first brought Zinfandel to America. Sadly, gentlemen, it appears I have misplaced the papers proving this to be the case.
1: Important to uh, check your facts. No fake news here.
0: Yes, Damn I did. Damn you, I, kids! <laughs>
1: <laughs> and your and your dog. So when you started uh, with the fifty thousand vines that you transplanted, yes. was was your winery? This was Las Flores. Very good. It wasn't a winery yet. It was okay, still so wasn't a commercial a commercial venture. Because fifty thousand no. vines can you can make a lot of wine with that.
0: Well, and to be honest, fresh grapes were so valuable that often it was unnecessary to make it into wine to sell. Uh, but I also planted vegetables. I had asparagus, zucchini, squash, watermelon. I planted cherry cherry trees. I had corn and wheat and barley, and so it was a it, it was a mixed. A farming enterprise. I, be- I believe there is a Las Flores winery now in California. I am not sure where.
2: We'll have I think to check it's Las Flores out. Springs or something. We'll have to check that out. I think we should.
0: Now, when I was in San Francisco, I became friends with many Germans and Hungarians involved in the smelting of the gold ore. It was the preeminent uh, economic enterprise at the time. Uh, assaying the ore and then and then breaking it down and, uh, then earning, and, and then smelting it into gold and silver bars. Uh, I was taught how to become an expert metallurgist and in 1853, because of my political connections, I was appointed the very first assayer of the U.S. Mint by President Pierce. What's an assayer? I was going to ask the same question. Well, so an assayer is one who judges the quality and purity of the, of the ore. Would that so- be something from the French, maybe? Assay? To try?
1: This is something else we'll have to look up. Boy, this is a, a very
0: educational. <laughs> wow, well, you are we talking with something. a 205 year old man. I've been paying attention the entire time. <laughs> so, I actually began my own s- smelting operation. It was called. It was called Wozniak and Hodesty and Molitor, and we had my very own smelting plant, and I produce gold and silver bars. Is that from the Paul Molitor line? Uh, uh that wouldn't, I, not that I'm aware of. No, okay, just tell So <laughs> in 1853, as a sayer of the Mint, my job was to work at the Mint, and I was there for four years. Um, in 1857, Roscoe Brown, a federal prosecutor and investigator, came, <laughs> excuse me, to San Francisco and after looking at the books, he charged me with embezzlement of $150,000. I was subject to a four-year inquiry. I was forced to hire lawyers at great expense, and in 1861 was fully acquitted of all civil and criminal charges by Judge McAllister, whose street named after him is right next to San Francisco City Hall, where, where Hastings College of the Law is today. Well. I'd gone around the bay looking for the perfect wine valley when I found the Sonoma Valley. I realized I'd found the perfect wine valley upon our earth because of the volcanic soil and maritime fog, which combined to make what I called purple gold.
1: I guess we can take a quick second to say that we actually have some purple gold in front of us. We have two bottles, two glasses of wine in front of us. We have uh, one of Michael's favorite bridles, especially from California. Viognier. It's uh, Chardonnay from the North Coast, 2015, Buena
2: Vista. We have we have two small glasses in front of us, and the bottle is gone. Andre, you were here early.
1: Uh, definitely was. I mean,
2: this was we had a Buena
1: Vista Chardonnay that went through vintages earlier this year, and it was very good, very great value. I'm not sure when this one will be available. Now Count, do you remember if you were making Chardonnay with Las Flores?
0: Uh, Most certainly not. I did acquire Chardonnay when I went to Europe in 1861 to bring back 353 different varieties. And so virtually all the well-known varieties in California today began, not exclusively, but some was begun by my my bringing back all these vinifera cuttings from Europe in 1861. Excellent. Chardonnay certainly among them.
2: Michael, what are your thoughts on this Chardonnay? Uh, I have to be honest, I was at a tasting earlier today, so my palate's a little bit off, but I, I like the nose. And I think there's some nice peach apple, which I am always a big fan of. I like smelling
0: fruit, not oak. So you've kept the oak. I'm going to say at a minimum on this. That one. would be accurate. I can explain the providence of the, of the vineyard. So this is the North Coast. This is from Lake Mendocino and Sonoma Counties. The Sonoma County portion is from Russian River. That portion is fermented in French oak, but the oak is once used. Uh, and that has a malolactic and sorely aging. But the other two-thirds of the wine from Mendocino Highlands and Clear Lake, no oak, no malolactic at all. So one-sixth oak or so. So just a very small amount and a small amount of malol. But what we're looking for is a wine that is an excellent food wine of Burgundian quality.
2: And still nice acidity to this no, I mean no, I got that the nice it's, it's smooth it's I wouldn't say crisp but it's it's that acidity it, it, keeps, it it, it keeps
1: it because even though the, the oak is one use like I'm still getting a lot of the like the butterscotch and vanilla but granted this wine is nearly room temperature as the day we are recording this it is nearly 40 degrees 40 actually. degrees Celsius which I believe is what almost 110 Uh, 40, and 40 is 80, so bad. 30, 110, yes. There we go. Yeah. So this wine that we're drinking is not 200 years old, and I guess we can jump right back in. You had just discovered the Sonoma Valley, and you were about to tell us about Purple Gold. Ah,
0: the glory years of Buena Vista. My dream had been to come to America to make great European wine, but not just to build, make a great winery and make great wine, but to build an industry, and this is why... Now, I am known as the father of California viniculture, as the first European, bring modern European viniculture techniques to California. I was the first to advise hillside planting, dry farming, planting grapevines closer together to stress them, thus reducing yield, the first to advise a green harvester dropping fruit, the first to write a 32-page pamphlet in 1858 as president, first president and founder of the California Agricultural Society I distributed this pamphlet for free and this pamphlet described, in good English, I was a very good writer in English, uh, how to choose vineyard land, how to prepare the land, how to plant the grapevines, how to prune them, how to pick the grapes, how to make the wine, how to sell the wine. Oh, oh, Mr. Cotter. Yes. Um,
2: can 32 pages actually be called a pamphlet? Uh, interesting point. <laughs> uh,
0: well, it Looks was in like it, it it? inexpensive paper. Oh. <laughs> It, what Didn't I have a full binding? <laughs> 32 pages is a pamphlet. Seems a lot. Well, it was a very successful pamphlet, and I spearheaded the great revolution in California wine. As I looked at the vineyard land and experienced the weather in particular, the rare, uh, rare occurrence of rain in the summer months, unlike any other growing region I have ever found, I was astonished and I, I wrote back to my friends in, in Hungary and in Europe that this was the greatest growing region I'd ever found and was convinced it would make great wine. For one thing, in Tokai where I had been part of the wine trade, the vineyards are beautiful, volcanic soil as well, and the Tijan-Bodrog rivers do create the moisture backing up against, against Tokai mountain, which then produces the botrytis and the wonderful they're wonderful Aju wines that are so powerful and so beautiful, sweet wines. The the king of wines, the wine of kings, of course. Um, so, in California, vineyards would be two miles long, and fifteen hundred feet in elevation, from five hundred to two thousand feet above sea level. It was so exciting, and the volcanic soil often was very much like Tokai. I knew I could make great wine in Sonoma. And so Buena Vista was a remarkable success. In 1861, I had convinced the state government of California as, a, as an official commissioner to go to Europe to bring back vinifera. I was gone for seven months. I first arrived in Paris and then to, down to Burgundy, up via, via Do- a Donkey and up to the Alps, down to Switzerland. I mean, down from Switzerland into Italy, then by boat all the way to Marseille, back through Bordeaux, and then to Spain.
1: And you brought American wines with you, or was this for you to explore more European
0: wines? The idea was twofold to bring back cuttings of vinifera, and also to see what was the most modern European viniculture techniques, as I had been gone from Europe since 1841. Okay. And so there I was back in Europe, and I visited some of the finest vineyards. Uh, it was so exciting. And, and in California, when I arrived, the vineyards were eight feet apart, the rows. But in, in Burgundy, in particular, the rows were four feet apart. But they pruned so aggressively and dropped so much fruit that the yield was the same. And there, of course, is the secret of modern 19th century European viniculture techniques to stress the grapes to have fewer of them and more flavor in each grape. And this was what I brought to California. So, I will tell you when I arrived back in California, uh, I had received a verbal promise from the legislators to be reimbursed for my expenses, not for the time and trouble, of course. Now I presented them with a bill for $12,000, a sizable sum, obviously. And you see, when I left in February, Of 1861, the American Civil War had not begun. By the time I returned, it was in full sway. Things not going very well for the Union. I'm a Democrat and certainly a supporter of the Union and nowhere near a radical abolitionist, but the Republicans had taken charge of the legislature. Interest in my project cooled and I was never reimbursed for my expenses.
1: That's a lot of money. A
0: sizable sum and and, uh, it does appear too late for that now. I think that revisiting the issue would be called a political non-starter at this vast expanse of time. Well, and so in 1863 I formed the Buena Vista Vinicultural Society. And if your listeners could see the bottle I'm holding in my hands, they would notice the Buena Vista Vinicultural Society. This is an actual original label from 1863, not that Chardonnay part of the North Coast, but. The actual original label saying, Buena Vista of an Society, and this is when I formed a modern agricultural corporation, the first in California's history, and I sold $600,000 of stock in 1863. Who was buying the stock in
1: 1863?
0: Interesting question and very valid. And French, very astute, my friend. Uh, yes, French bankers in San Francisco were the buyers. Okay, because so the French liked your wine. And the French understood how much money a modern winery could make. Okay. There had never been one like mine in America before. And so, uh, although I tried to, to have other people buy the stock, it was a hard sell, it didn't seem to make any sense, but the French stepped up and purchased my stock.
1: Okay. Now, at this stage, how many wineries had been established in California?
0: It would depend on what you mean by a winery.
1: Let's say people looking at a commercial venture, not someone who brought 50,000 vines from San Diego hoping to make a few bottles or just to grow the fruit.
0: The very first commercial winery in California was a winery founded by Jean-Louis Vignet in 1841. He was a Frenchman. He, in all regards, was a modern winery. He had a winery building two stories. This, of course, is in the San Fernando Valley. This was the, the first Place where grape growing was done on a commercial basis in California. And he put a bottle, he put a label on his wine. In the book Two Years Before the Mast, Richard Henry Dana describes and I will quote here uh, that he was talking about the Mission wine and he says but the Mission wine was nothing like good old Don Luis. That's a quote from a wonderful book Two Years Before the Mast. Uh, so my friend General Vallejo was making one commercially in Sonoma, as early as 1839. Wow. And he had a French uh, winemaker, Victor Faur. He was growing vinifera. So we are not the first winery. We are, however, the oldest winery that is making wine today.
1: Okay. And, uh. we, are,
0: and, and we are the single most important historic winery because there had never been uh, a, lar- a, a huge enterprise like Buena Vista before. So, Buena Vista starts in, like,
2: the actual... 1857. Okay. So, how old are the vines that you have on the property now? Do you have any
0: really old, old vines? A very good question. Um, On the original footprint of my vineyards, there is a 160-year-old grapevine. Just one? One. It very well made. It is almost certainly... I've not found an older vine, and this is almost certainly the last remaining vine from my original plantation and somehow this one vine survived, the dreaded louse, the bug.
1: All right. <laughs>
0: but it's, and, and it was grafted to flame tokay. Okay. Uh, which is it's quite something to see. It is, it is four feet square. There is a central um, uh, part of the vine and then four, uh, four sisters coming out uh, beautiful grapes still making wine today. There is a grapevine at the Mission in Ventura that is reputed, dates reputedly back to the 1820s. But I have not seen it. Hmm. But I've heard that it exists. It is still alive. And that, of course, is Mission. The, and, and we now know that the Mission grape was Lestan Prieto. Which is a, which is a, a grape from the Canary Islands. Oh wow. OK. We just discovered this of a few years ago. So it was unclear where it came from, but now with genetic testing, we're finding all sorts of things. The modern world is amazing.
1: <laughs> so I'm looking over there and I see Michael has discovered the second wine in his glass Discovering. discovered <laughs> It was there all the time. You've got this, like, puzzled look on your face as you're sitting there s-
2: swirling it around. Well, I know you've already sipped it. I watched you, you know, I at least wait for our guest to say, now let's move on to the next wine or something. And you uh, were just... just I'm enamored by a
1: story. It's impossible to listen to these stories about these old grapes and the purple gold and not sip on some of these mm. wines. Mm. I don't have the patience. I'm sorry, Count. I'm just... Not that polite. I'm sorry, I have a little more class. So this well, wine this wine is the... So this
0: is called the Count Founders Red Wine. Oh, wow. Now, this is a blend. I never bottled a single varietal. That's a modern notion. I always blended different grapes together because by blending together, we receive varied flavors without extensive bottle age. So the art of the winemaker is to blend. We didn't begin putting varietal names on labels in California except for a few slight... Um, um, uh, exceptions, until the 1940s. And in my view this is because of the horrors of prohibition, you see. Because the tragedy of prohibition... So the horrors? The or ho- horrors. you think
2: horrors. I, I thought
0: horrors. He said, horrors of prohibition and I'm like... Well, it is sort of like a double-edged comment. Um, well, you see, America was becoming a wine-drinking nation because of our French, Swiss, German, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, immigrants. And they were using wine as Europeans had done for a very long time as part of a, a life well lived as the secular saint of Napa Robert Mondavi stated. And to use wine as a table wine to accentuate flavors of food to aid in digestion. But in prohibition the knowledge was lost and so they turned table wine into booze and they sweetened it and they fortified it. And then in the 1940s, they started putting a varietal name as a sort of cheat sheet to make it more likely you would buy a grape that would suit your palate, and so that's when you start seeing varietal names appear on labels.
1: That's a pretty good knowledge of, of history because at that point you've got to be what about 100
0: and well, years 18, old. Well, so I was paying attention the whole time. I was, I was, I was not physically present upon the earth. So this this bottle of wine called the Count with my picture upon the label is a blend of seven
1: grapes.
0: Okay. So 25% Merlot, 20 Syrah, 19 Petit Verdot, 11 Zin, 10 Cabernet, 8 Petit Syrah, and 7 Malbec. So I have, a, as a man of the world, Thank you. Um, and of, of knowledge
2: uh, in the wine. Well, and, yes. And the politics. Uh, indeed, indeed, sir. So the U.S. brings in prohibition but yeah, disastrous but they 've always said that uh, they're interested in the um, uh, the states the states have more power than the federal government theoretically isn't that part of the the deal? The states can over overrule the the federal government if they decide to, such as like marijuana, some states have marijuana, although the federal government is not a big so why didn't California, who was at that time a uh, definitely the, uh, the largest wine-growing and drinking state with all of these immigrants who, as you said, Spanish, Portuguese, blah, 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 why didn't they say, you know what, we're not allowing prohibition in California?
0: Well, I can tell you that California voted it down quite handily, but sadly, all they needed was two-thirds of the states to approve the amendments to the Constitution. And although it might have been three quarters, I think I'm not I, as familiar I, with the American I, I, law. Well, so I, I know, it's either two thirds or three quarters. I think but but I'm I think that, it's three quarters actually. States, why couldn't the California
2: say, "Well, we're out on this one"? It's well, because, I don't think you can overrule the it's constitution because the federal
0: government, you see, and the Eighteenth Amendment outlawed alcohol. The Twenty First well, brought, brought, it, brought back. it back. Now, one of the curious aspects of the Twenty First Amendment uh, was, well, the Eighteenth Amendment stepping back was that the amendment, as proposed declared that all intoxicating beverages would be illegal in America. But exactly what that phrase meant was unknown to everyone who either voted for or against the amendment, and it passed in 1920. Now, after six months, Senator Volstead released the actual technical aspects of the law. And to everyone's horror, particularly in wine-loving California, all alcohol was made illegal. It was understood that certainly evil rum, gin, and whiskey would be illegal, but wine and beer were viewed as temperate beverages, not intoxicating. But it was, in fact, complete prohibition rather than temperance. And so most of the wineries in California went out of business. In 1919, there were 175 wineries in Sonoma County, 125 in Napa County. There was, there was a great deal of wineries and great success. Great fortunes have been made. And many winemakers in California wonder where we would be as an industry if it wasn't for Prohibition, if it had not taken place. We would be infinitely farther along because, because Prohibition was such a great disaster. But then if we look at history as
2: well, would if, if there hadn't been prohibition, would the Judgment of Paris been such a
0: big deal? Well, well, the, the question of how quality a California wine would have been answered 40 years before. Correct. So the Judgment Certainly. of Paris would not have
2: been such
1: a big deal. And well, maybe the a... Judgment of Paris would have taken place in 1933 instead of 1976. Well,
0: it was a very large sea change in perception of California wine, and we are still riding the wave to this day. Although to be straightforward as a European and as a student of wine, I can tell you that in California, residents are not just convinced of the quality of their wine to French wine, but the superiority of their of their wine to French wine. <laughs> this is simply not true.
1: So Count, let's go back to you're now at Buena yes. Vista. Yes, you yes. have the French who have purchased your stock, and I know this is not the end of your adventures.
0: Yes, well of course. And so uh in eighteen 18- 63, forming the, the, the Vinicultural Society, uh, $600,000. I bought more land, more modern equipment, and by 1865, I was making 200,000 bottles of wine a year. I had 500 acres of grapevines. I stood at the top of my financial familial and personal success. But now, gentlemen, my story turns to tragedy. It is so very sad. I generally ask for gesticulations of dismay. Oh, yeah. very good, very good. Yeah. Very good, thank you. Uh, you see, as early as 1860, there had been a shadow over my life. In that year, a few of my grapevines died. The leaves turned yellow and brown, and the grapes were small with no flavor. It was an unknown vine disease. I tried everything I put lime into the soil, I flooded the vineyards, I put sulfur on each vine, but nothing would stop the death of my vines my financial backers turned against me declared my portion the stock vote worthless having come to believe that my European techniques were the cause of the death of the vines I was forced to declare bankruptcy in 1866
1: year before Canada became a country <laughs> <laughs> what well, we're
0: talking about history and God bless Canada's gentlemen
1: <laughs> do we need to do more, uh, more sounds of dismay
0: Uh, Yes, you do. Yes. uh, Well, you see, there I was in Sonoma, bankrupt. Now, I'm an expert distiller. I made delicious brandy. I'd always been fascinated by Central America, where the sugar cane grows like a weed. In 1868, I took half of my family, Eleanor, my wife, Gaze, my oldest son, Ida and Otelia, my two daughters, Arpad, Attila, and Bela stayed behind, and we moved to Nicaragua. To make rum and rebuild my fortune. How did that go for you? Thank you. Things are very well in Nicaragua. At first, I formed a partnership with a sugar cane plantation owner, brought in beautiful copper kettle as I built a house for my family in the jungle. With parrots in the trees, monkeys flying from limb to limb. The crooked witch. witch of the west riding through her in her room. I did not see her, but I could have been Don Facundo Bacardi. <laughs> until the date with destiny, gentlemen. July 6, 1869. I was exploring the sugarcane plantation, crossing a river on a tree that had grown over the river and was used as a natural bridge. The river was full of crocodiles. As I crossed, I grabbed hold of a branch. It broke. In my hand I slipped, I fell into the river, and was eaten by a 14-foot-long crocodile. What a way to um, go. Ooh. Yeah, what a way to go. He grabbed me in his horrible jaw and rolled me over and over until I drowned. Then he stuffed me under a rock below the water let me soften up for several weeks until, finally, he ate me. Have a nice dinner. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That was the end of the count. Now, of course, I'm sure many of your listeners are wondering what was the actual cause of the death of the vines. I know the answer
1: because I I visited you a couple years ago.
0: I do too, though, but I never visited him. Now, for your listeners, I can explain that this is a bug, a root louse, an aphid is called phylloxera. This is the single most important story in the world of wine, and I probably, although we'll never know for sure, as I did not ever find out, it wasn't my fault. The death of the vines. You see, this is a root louse lives below the soil. It is a bug, one twenty-fifth of an inch, almost invisible. It eats away the roots. Now, American rootstock is resistant to the American bug, not vinifera European. So, Vitis Riperia, la Brusca, Rupestris, American rootstock can survive the bug. And so now, everywhere in the world except for Chile, we plant American rootstock, Rupestris mostly, and Grafenifera into it. In some places in Australia. Well, it's gone everywhere except Chile is the only place. Yeah, Chile, live. I
2: know it is. Yes. But I think even Chile is now starting to. I know you will. You know. Not so, so,
1: count with this tragic ending and even with the phylloxera. <clears that. throat> yes. How, really quickly, how do you come to be with us today after being devoured uh, by Ah, well,
0: I came here in a flying metal tube two days ago, <laughs> I am selling wine through this remarkable thing called the LCBO, and uh, so I was brought back to life six years ago by a man named Jean Charles Boisse, and he is, he is a French wine entrepreneur that owns Raymond in the Napa Valley, Deloach in the Russian River Valley, and with his family, 22 wineries in France. He is very wealthy, and he is a remarkable man who loves history and biodynamic agriculture, which is, a, which is a, the wave of the future for all wine, and eventually, as we hope, all wine will be done with biodynamic agriculture. It's a step above organic, utilizing the precepts of Rudolf Steiner, who invented a way... Uh, to to grow better tasting fruits and vegetables over 100 years ago without chemical fertilizer or pesticides using the power of nature and cosmos itself we take a cow horn filled with manure buried in the full moon we grind crystals put into the soil and so once again and no chemical fertilizers or pesticides and it is remarkable absolutely works so john charles brought me back to life and that's why i'm here today so you are a biodynamic winery our sister is Raymond and Deloach, their estate vineyards are 100% biodynamic. We have over 400 acres. Demeter certified biodynamic in, in uh, Napa and Sonoma. Uh, our winery uses 42 independent grape growers, and all of our growers are sustainable, heading toward organic, heading toward biodynamic. We're not there yet. It takes a long time.
1: Well, okay, I really appreciate you telling your story, Count.
0: It has been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank
2: you for being back with us. Thank you. Andre, I had, Andre I, get that I, grin <laughs> off your face. It's just massive. I can't imagine. you're I like had a, too much fun. You're like a guy who's reading a dirty magazine. You know what? Like when when, when, when
1: when I visited California, I had a chance to visit some very prestigious wineries. I visited Ridge Estates. I visited Chateau Montalena. But the winery that I'm really looking forward to visiting again is Buena Vista. Just to get that experience again. Because it, it's... It's an experience where the quality of the wine is just as important as the quality of the experience. And if you're going to California, even if you're an incredibly hardened wine snob, take the time to go to this winery. If you have a bad time, there's clearly something wrong with you. You
2: you were very Jimi Hendrix on this one. I was Jimi Hendrix on this. Are you experienced? Yes, you are. <laughs> so, we should give another plug to two guys talking live at Henry of Pelham, October 21st. Two to four in the afternoon. Join us there. You'll be part of the podcast. You can ask your own questions as well. There's going to be a wine tasting that day as well with all three Spec Brothers. Anything else that I'm forgetting in this? Nope, but you can
1: subscribe to this podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode uh, on iTunes. Leave a comment. Let us know what you think. Yeah. Oh, and I'm Michael Pincus from MichaelPincusWineReview.com. I'm not saying my website again because you said it enough already. Why don't you sign us off, Michael?
0: Good night.